Let us pray. Bow your heads with me before we open our Bibles this morning. Lord, we thank you for instruments, including our voices, that we can worship you. We can sing to you. We can just bring you the glory that we know you desire and that, frankly, only you deserve. Lord, we need you to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, to grant us that experiential understanding of your word this morning. As we open our Bibles, remove any barriers that may prevent us from hearing you, from learning what your word says to us, because we need the truth, and your word is truth. And once again, as always, Father, I pray that you would remo remove me from the equation, and that it would be as if Jesus Christ were physically present behind this pulpit speaking to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's get our Bibles out and let's dive right in to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. For those of you that actually have decent eyesight, you should be able to see that. Try to fit it all in there in one slide. Matthew 6, 5 through 8. The title of the sermon this morning is Prayer Matters. And you understand that as we go through this sermon. Matthew 6, 5 through 8. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In a book entitled, Call to Pray, Astounding Stories of Answered Prayer, Charles Stanley, the pastor and author, tells about a, a friend of his, another pastor, who suddenly found himself in a desperate situation. This pastor's name uh, is Jack, and he was in such a hurry to fly a small plane from Miami to Fort Pierce, Florida, that he forgot to perform a fuel check before takeoff. So about 4 p.m. as Jack was flying to the clouds, his plane began to sputter as it abruptly lost altitude. And when Jack looked down his fuel gauge, he realized his mistake and his heart sank. Jack knew that he and his plane were going down. He also knew the only thing he could do to prepare for impact was to try to find a suitable landing place so his journey wouldn't end in a ball of fire. But instead of spotting a nice landing strip from his high altitude perch, Jack looked down at only trees. Miles and miles of trees. Power lines and houses as his plane continued its downward slide to earth. At that same moment, one of Jack's church members was busy in her kitchen when she was hit by a terrible burden to pray for her pastor. When she couldn't shake the burden, she headed for her bedroom and hit her knees in prayer, crying and pleading with God on her pastor's behalf. Meanwhile, Jack's gliding descent continued, and just as he was preparing for the inevitable crash into trees, he blinked, for just ahead was a freshly plowed field. It would be a stretch to make it, but Jack pointed the nose of the plane towards that field and prayed. The wheels of his plane touched the soft earth of that field, and the next thing Jack knew, the plane's nose was leaning on the trunk of a tree. Despite making contact with the tree, Jack's plane sustained no damage whatsoever. Amazed, Jack hopped out of his plane and walked away, glancing at his watch. His ordeal had lasted 30 minutes. At the same time, Jack's praying felt her prayer burden lifted, for her pastor, 
She rose and returned to her kitchen, noticing the time was 4.30 p.m. The next Sunday morning, this dear woman asked Pastor Jack, why did the Lord have me on my knees for you last Monday afternoon? What was going on? She was astonished by his answer, but Jack was equally astonished that she had been called to pray. He now knew he had landed his plane on the wings of a prayer as a result of a gracious God who had answered his urgent prayers for a friend. Now these stories and other stories that there's too many to share highlight a a point that I, I know, I forget, and I remember, and I need to keep it before me. And you need to keep it before you, quite frankly. And that is that God does nothing but an answer to saving prayer. Let me say it again. God does nothing but an answer to saving prayer. So if you don't see God doing anything in your life, it's probably because you really aren't praying. And that's, of course, not the the issue of the sermon here. I'm not trying to motivate you to pray because Jesus says when you pray. So obviously he is assuming that the people he's talking to are already praying, right? Let's talk about this first point I want to get into, and it's what I call praying errors. I need to give you some background that will help you understand why Jesus said what he said. So as Jesus delivers his sermon on the mount, do you remember what he told them in chapter 5? Your theology is inadequate. It is substandard. It doesn't meet my standard of righteousness. And in chapter 6, where we are this morning, he tells them their religious practices are inadequate. And of course, he started off last week with what? Giving. Their giving was inadequate. And he picks three illustrations out of the religious practices to show them where they're failing to meet God's standard of righteousness, giving, praying, and fasting. And of course, last week, we looked at how Jesus exposed their hypocrisy in giving. And in the next few weeks, we're going to look at their hypocrisy in praying. Yes, it's possible to be a hypocrite and still pray. The truth of the matter is all of their religious practices were hypocritical. Think about this. They were hypocritical in their giving toward men. They were hypocritical in their praying, which was toward God. And they were hypocritical in their fasting, which was dealing with self. So every dimension of their spiritual experience was inadequate and hypocritical. Now, while this message was a call for his audience to believe in him as a savior from their sin, it was also a message for his followers. Because remember, the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to expose the fact that you are inadequate. What you think is the, the high standard of righteousness to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that is woefully short of the righteousness that you need to be in my kingdom. And this sermon is meant to show them that they're that inadequate to bring them to their knees and to call it for a Savior. And who is that Savior? None other than Jesus Christ himself. But this is a warning, this message, I believe, to his disciples as well, and including us as well, to carefully watch over our religious practices. Because the Lord warned them and warns us, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This is Matthew 16, 6. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, you put a little leaven in a flour, and in dough, what happens? It spreads throughout the entire dough. So beware of hypocrisy, because it spreads everywhere. It spreads everywhere. Now, hypocrisy can find its way even into the life of one who is truly a child of the king. And just as giving was central to their faith, so was prayer. Because the rabbis taught that great is prayer, greater than all good works. And of course, last week, they equated giving with what? Righteousness. Now they're saying that, that prayer is equally as important. It's greater than all good works. And no nation in its history has ever had a higher priority on prayer than Israel. But unfortunately, their praying deteriorated into hypocrisy. Now, here are some of the errors that crept into the prayer life of the Hebrew people. And let me Let's see if you can relate to any of these and suffer from any of these. And if you find any of these still in the church today, 
the first thing that was, the first error was that their prayers became ritualized. This type of praying replaces the reality of a poured out heart. And this is typical of the way people pray today. You know, one prays as part of a sequential liturgy with a prayer from a book. This, of course, turns prayer into what? It is a routine. You reflect your prayer life or your talking with God is just more of a routine. Now, the best example of this would be reciting the Lord's Prayer before going to bed every night. And if you ever saw that movie, Deep Water Horizon, about the BP, Deep Water, what was that called? Oil rig out in the middle of the Gulf Atlantic or the Gulf Coast. It just, you know, exploded. In the movie, at the end, when they rescued almost about 90% of the people because there were some fatalities, they all bowed their head and prayed the Lord's Prayer, which really had nothing to do with that situation at all. Next week, we'll talk about this. The Lord's Prayer is not something that's really meant to be recited. You know that, right? It's a model, a, an outline of how you are to pray. We'll get to that next week. So prayer becomes simply an exercise with little or no meaning or significance. How many of you can recite the Lord's Prayer and be thinking of something else? Right? Now for the Jew, in the morning and at night, you had to read the Shema. The Shema comes from a Hebrew word meaning to hear. And the Shema is basically Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, and Numbers 15, 37 through 41. It means to hear, and that's why the verses say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Remember that? So they took all those verses. So that's what, 5, 13, 22 verses roughly. And they made this one long prayer. Now they also prayed what was known as the Shimon Esrei. It was 18 prayers for all different purposes. I mean, they had to pray these in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And praying these memorized prayers led people to one of three categories, and, and this is true today. The first category was it could be a true, loving communion with God, but most of the people didn't fit into that category. They fell into one of the other two. The second category was the, the Pharisees group, let's call it that, and these prayers became an opportunity to parade their pious self-righteousness as they put a demonstration for everybody to see. And there are people that like to pray in front of other people, like to hear their voice, like to make themselves look good. I've seen that before. Now, the third category of people didn't pray honestly from their hearts, and they didn't pray pretentiously like the Pharisees. They just mumbled the prayer to get it over with so they could get on with what they were doing. So in Jesus' time, there were two extremes of hypocritical praying. One involved pride in prayer, and the other involved indifference in prayer. The second error of their prayers was they, would, they had these special prayers for special occasions. I mean, listen to this. They had prayers for everything. Here's just a, a sample of some of their prayers. Prayers for light, Prayers for darkness, prayers for fire, prayers for lightning, prayers for rain, prayers when you receive good news, prayers when you receive bad news. They even had a prayer when you got new furniture. Okay? I mean, you get the picture. This became the common habit. So you had to find out what the prayer was, learn it, memorize it, and then pray it over that particular event, as was fitting. Of course, this turned prayer into what? A routine, a total commitment to a prescribed prayers. I mean, there's no genuine heartfelt motive. Number three, let's see if you can relate to this, is that prayer eventually turned into something you did at certain times. Can you relate to that? Does that happen today? See, apart from those times, you just didn't pray because you prayed during these times. And for those that love routine, this is great. Unfortunately, 
That's not life. Life happens out of routine. Prayer became something strictly limited to a certain hours, which inevitably made prayer a useless routine with meaning nowhere beyond some kind of an hourly function. And to show you how meaningless prayer had become at this time, William Barclay, the theologian, tells about a, a Mohammedan who was pursuing an enemy and he drew his knife out to kill him. And then the call to prayer came. Right when he was going to stab his enemy. So what did he do? He stopped. He unrolled his prayer cloth, knelt down, and prayed through his prayer as fast as he could. Then he rose up and went on with killing his enemy. This is not made up. This is actually what was going on. It's what had happened. So prayer had strictly become routine. The fourth error is that this led to, it became really spiritual to pray long prayers. You remember Jesus said in Mark 12, 40, and for appearance sake, the Pharisees offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation, he said. And we, did, we see this play out, and I'll never forget this, when we pray for our food. I remember being at the Ohio University Inn after I think it was a, a, a church service, and it was there with a large members of our families, people from this church. We we're sitting down, and after church, you know, you're hungry, right? It stays, it's hard to try and stay awake during a sermon. You, you, you know, you, I'm trying to make a joke here. You try to get, exert a lot of energy to stay awake, and it makes you hungry, right? So we all got there, and you're sitting down, and you, you're always waiting for people to come in and you want to wait till everyone's there, and then you can uh, go to a buffet, but you want to eat your food, and so you're waiting for everybody, and they get there, and of course, it's spiritual, they want someone to pray over the food. And I remember this one gentleman, I didn't know who he was, he was praying for the food, and it was like an over five to ten minute prayer. Now, this isn't a religious setting, by the way. When someone prays a long prayer of blessing over a meal, in my opinion, three things usually happen. Number one, the food gets cold. That's the key thing, right? Because you're hungry. Number two, it's usually a show of self-righteousness and the person who's praying in many ways. Um, it's easy to confuse many words with holiness. And number three, everyone waiting to eat usually gets angry at the person praying over the food. While you wish none of that would be true, there are times for longer prayers and there are times for just a shorter prayer of blessing over the food we're about to eat. And number five, the fifth error was that prayer turned into a vain and meaningless repetition. And this was something that the Jews picked up from the pagans. The pagan approach to prayer is to you keep repeating yourself until you wear God down so he does what you want. It's as if you have to constantly badger God almost into submission to fulfill your desires. And when we pray this way, we show we are more concerned about what we are saying than communing with God. And finally, and probably worst of all, is that they prayed to be seen by men and not heard by God. Let's take a look at this in our study this morning. Let's look at what I call hypocritical praying. In Matthew 6, 5, it says this. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Again, look at verse 5. It says they love to stand and pray. Now, at first glance, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? But the question is, why did they love to stand and pray? Was the motive a love for God? Did they love to pray because they couldn't wait to fellowship with their Heavenly Father? No, they loved to pray to be seen by men. So they wanted to be on the stage, to put on a show like an actor. And of course, the word actor is where we get the word hypocrite from. Now, Ron Mattoon adds an interesting note pointing out this, which I think is very damaging to the the Pharisees that prayed this way, that these pompous hypocrites would gather at a busy street corners at these times to be seen praying. 
And they would go to these places knowing the time of prayer was soon. And it's interesting to note that the word used here for street is not the same as that in Matthew 6.2, which refers to a narrow street. The Greek word used here refers to a wide, major street. It's a major street corner where a crowd was most likely to be. And the implied fault here is that the hypocrites loved to pray where they would have the largest audience. This is why they gathered at the wide streets. Again, the Pharisees were simply actors in a play, speaking from under a mask. And their mask was that of self-righteousness, which men would look at and be deceived, thinking they were something that they were not. They were not praying to honor God, folks. They were praying to honor themselves. They sought the esteem of men, not that of God. But praying in an inner room, as Jesus instructs, would have been the last thing that these false hypocrites would do. Who would hear their lengthy and embellished prayers if they prayed secretly in a room? Now I know that we, I don't think that many of us ever, maybe have never even done, never gone to a certain place or prayed to draw attention to myself, okay? But I have struggled with, as I've learned to pray, what we call meaningless praying. Look at verse seven. When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now, before we dissect this verse, I wanna remind us that we are called to persevere in prayer, okay? Jesus prayed the same prayer over and over and over again in Matthew 26, 44. Remember this? He left the disciples again, and he went away and prayed a third time. Watch this. Saying the same thing once more. Is that meaningless repetition? Doesn't God hear him when he first asked him, right? Now, Jesus gave us a parable encouraging us to continue to seek the Father with the same request. Remember this? Now, he's telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow's widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. So she continually came to him with the same request over and over and over and over and over again. Is that not meaningless repetition, right? It goes on to say, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Again, the people are, the elect are crying to God day and night. They're going to be repeating the same prayers. And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. So what's the difference between meaningless repetition and persevering prayer? But when it is the honest cry of a burdened heart, it is legitimate. When it is mindless, Repetition, it is meaningless. Folks, we do not have to appease an indifferent God, nor is it necessary for us to constantly be informing him about our particular circumstances as if he didn't know. This is what the Jews were doing with the Shema and the Shema Nasrei. And by the way, this is the way today still of pagan religions. After a Muslim funeral, it's not uncommon, if you or not, for the people to gather around the funeral and say, Allah el Allah, which means God is God, and repeat it 3,000 times before they leave. Buddhists have been known to put a written prayer on a wheel and turn it with a crank and let it be turned with the wind. And every time the wheel turns, their God is supposed to be hearing their prayer. 
it's not unlike the Roman Catholic churches where people light a candle and supposedly as long as the candle is lit, the throne of God is besought with the same constant prayer. But probably the best example of the mindless repetition of pagans is found in the Old Testament in the story of Elijah and the Baal prophets. Remember that story? It takes place on Mount Carmel. Now, Elijah appears on the pages of Scripture during one of the darkest hour, hours of Israel's sad history. I think we should find that encouraging because our country is, is going down a very steep descent and is in a very dark place. Fifty-eight years had passed since the death of Solomon, the son of David, who was the king. And during that brief period, no less than seven kings had reigned between Solomon and the time of Elijah. And all of them, without exception, were wicked men. Israel had grievously and flagrantly departed from Jehovah. The people were worshiping Baal, and never before had Israel sunk so low. And yet God sends his prophet Elijah to deliver his message of judgment upon the land. Get your Bibles out. Again, go back to 1 Kings. Actually, go back to, go to 1 Kings, chapter 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, okay? So get your phone, get your Bibles out. I'll wait till you guys are there. Because we're going to spend some time looking at this story. First Kings chapter 17, verse 1. In this story, you will see all the elements of uh, Matthew 6, 5 through 8. And how not to pray and, and how to pray. Is everybody there? Okay. First Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And that is a pretty stiff judgment. Now think about this. It's not just rain. We sit and think it didn't rain, right? There's no dew either. <laughs> okay? So the weather is not even producing dew to get the, the ground even a little bit of moisture. It's probably going bone dry here, okay? So no dew nor rain, now except by the words of Elijah. Now, this is the first time Elijah appears in the pages of Scripture. He's a prophet. And I would say that that is quite a first assignment, is to confront a wicked king with a message of judgment because of the actions of this wicked king. The thought I have is where in the world did Elijah get the confidence to say, with full assurance, by the way, let's catch this, that all would be according to his word, not the king's word. It's his word, Elijah's word. I wish I was Elijah in that sense. I'd like for all to go according to my word. Things would be different around here if it went according to my word. Now, just listen to this, but, but James, the brother of Jesus, provides the answer for us, or some of the answer for us about how in the world Elijah could just say with full assurance and confidence that nothing's going to happen, it's all going to happen according to my word. He says this in James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Now Jesus says the same thing in Luke 4.25, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. Now you understand when he says the word great famine, now I think you understand. No dew nor rain. That is a great famine. But three years and six months, no dew, no rain. Now you're in First Kings. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. Now watch this. It says this. 
Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. The question is, though, it's the third year, right? You see that? But Jesus and James said it didn't rain for how long? Three years and six months. So the question becomes, how do we explain those additional six months? Well, it's pretty simple if you think about it. Elijah did not begin his, his fervent prayers after his appearance before Ahab. Obviously, when? Six months prior. You see that? So that means that there had already been a six-month drought when Elijah visited Ahab. Now, it says that Elijah was what? A man of prayer, just like us. He had a nature just like us. And so obviously, this prayer was the source of his confidence. And here's my point. Prayer in secret, because he had prayed in secret. We know nothing about him other than he shows up on the scene, but what had he been doing in secret for six months prior to the beginning of his ministry? Praying. So a prayer in secret was a source of his power in public. See that? He could stand courageously in the presence of the wicked King Ahab because he had knelt in humility before Almighty God. I mean, you want confidence? You want courage? Get on your knees. Pray. But we also need to carefully observe the fact that, that Elijah says he prayed earnestly. So now, is he praying the same thing over and over again for six months? Is he praying that it would not rain for three and a half years? Yes. Okay, but it's not meaningless repetition. So his praying was no formal or spiritless prayers. It was wholehearted, it was fervent, and it was effective. Because God was about to destroy the prophets of Baal, but since he does nothing but an answer to prayer, what does God do? He raises up Elijah, he burdened Elijah's heart to pray, and then in his timing, makes his will in heaven a reality on earth. That's how God works. So in Elijah, we do not find the hypocritical praying or the meaningless babble that were characteristic of the Jewish culture that Jesus stepped into. Instead, we find the secret, private, persistent, effectual prayers of a righteous man. And as the story continues, Elijah suggests a test before the people to determine who really is God. Is it Jehovah or is it Baal? And we pick this up in 1 Kings 18, chapter 18, verses 20 through 24. It says, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. I want to say caramel because I'm hungry, but it's just caramel. <laughs> Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Now, mind you again, the, Israel has turned from Jehovah. They're following Baal. So Elijah, he's not alone, but he feels alone. He's in the minority. But the people, it says, did not answer him a word. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. I'm in for some fireworks, right? And it's here that we find the meaningless repetition in many words 
that characterized pagan prayers. Look at verses 26 to 29. Then he took the ox, which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone outside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. I got to admit, I kind of like Elijah. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was passed, they, watch this, raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. So all day they cried out, kind of working themselves up into a, 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 a lathered frenzy by their raving nonsensical babble that proved what? Ineffective and useless. Now the next verses provide a sharp contrast. And this is where I really want you to stay awake. If you can, stay awake. If you need to stand up, stand up. But I want you to see this. A sharp contrast to the prayers of a subject of his kingdom. In other words, this is how we pray. Watch this. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice... Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not, let them, do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slew them there. How in the world did Elijah know that God would bring down fire to consume the offering? Well, look at the last half of verse 36. What does it say? I have done all these things at your word. In other words, translation, God told him to do it. God told him to do it. God had revealed his will to Elijah. Elijah, now watch this, simply prayed that his revealed will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it is in this story that we see very clearly highlighted the difference between a religion and a relationship. See that? God reveals to his children what is to come. Do you remember the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, here's what happened. Just before the city's demise, Genesis 18, 16, 17 says this, Then the men, meaning angels, rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Why would he say that? Why would the Lord say that? Well, because Abraham, we know, was in a relationship with God. He was considered a friend of God, and friends don't keep secrets from each other. And God decided, I'm not going to hide my will from Abraham. I will let him know what I'm going to do. And Abraham immediately begins negotiating with God. Remember the story? And by the way, I would never want Abraham to be my realtor. Okay? Lord, if they're like 50, then he goes, how about 45? How about 30? You know, it goes, oh, no, I think down like 10, I think it is. If there are 10 righteous people, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And of course, no. Just make it one, Abraham, and it would have saved him. Come on, man. But he revealed to him what he was going to do. And Jesus said, this is a characteristic of his followers. In other words, if you're a follower of him, you are a subject of his kingdom. This is what you should expect. 
friendship with God and revealing of what is to come. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you what? Friends. For all things I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Did he keep anything from us? No, because friends don't keep secrets. In fact, this is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, to reveal what is to come. Remember John 16, 13? But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So in other words, he's gonna tell you the future. Now, this story from Elijah shows us what prayer looks like when you're in a relationship with God. Go back to 1 Kings 17.1, okay? It's not a meaningless babble. It's not hypocritical praying. That's religion. It's a relationship where you know your father's will. Where you're being guided by him. And he's your companion, your guide, your friend, and your God. Look at 1 Kings 17.1 again. This is why you slowly meditate and, and look at scriptures. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was, this, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now it says that what you can see here is Elijah, quote unquote, knew God. Because the text says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Where was the God of Israel at this time, but he was not being worshiped. They deserted him. But for Elijah, he was what? Alive. He was a living reality, meaning he knew him. He experienced him. His knowledge of God was that epinosis, that experiential knowledge. Because all around him, every trace of God had ceased. And as far as outward appearances went, there was no soul in Israel who believed in his existence because the nation worshiped Baal, but not Elijah. I mean, why, why would he worship Baal when he had his own personal experiential knowledge of God? You see, when people maybe grow up in the church, and then they leave the church and follow some cult or just leave the church and become an atheist? You know what happened to those people? Actually, you know what didn't happen to those people? They never knew him. They never experienced him. And in that environment, in that context, at that time, that was required for someone to not go the way of the world, to follow the pattern of the world. He knew him. Because when someone has experienced God, the apostasy and atheism of the time, it does not shake the faith of a friend. And because of this relationship with God, Elijah was conscious of God's presence. Look what else it says. It says that as the Lord, the God of Israel is, before whom I stand. Let me put this that word stand in perspective here. Who currently stands in the presence of God? Is it angels? No, they bow before him, right? So who stands before God? Jesus. And us. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we stand before God. Obviously, Elijah had the righteousness of Christ. He is standing before God. So there's a conscious experience and awareness of God's presence. Because he now stands before the God of Israel. And this explains the courage of Elijah. He could appear before the powerful, wicked King Ahab because he knew he was also in the presence of one and had been in the presence of one who was infinitely greater than any earthly ruler. Now, of course, how does that happen? 
Folks, how does that happen? I'm not going to answer this one for you. You're praying. You're spending time with him, right? You're praying. You're experiencing him. Thus, James says, Elijah's praying is a model for us to copy. Do you understand that now? Now, obviously, Elijah practiced secret praying, right? Where did we get that idea from? That's what Jesus just teaching. It's the way the subjects of his kingdom pray. So let's talk about secret praying. Verse Matthew 6, go back there. Matthew 6, verses 6 and verse 8, and also verse 8. Secret praying. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. <laughs> this is kind of funny, but the secret to secret prayer is what? Secret prayer. So find some quiet place, some, some quiet nook or a closet or whatever, some secret place, shut the door so that nobody can hear you and so you will not be distracted or disturbed, and pray. Now, it is there you will find God. That's the promise, and that he will also reward you. The reward being what? Answer your prayers. But there's another reward that's far greater than the answered prayer. Is you learn to fellowship with God. You get to experience him. Because that's the gift, folks. That's the gift. Now, when you look at this, okay, this seems like there's a whole lot of instruction going on on just how to pray. But let me suggest to you a few reasons. I think you'll want to pay attention to this. If you ever, and I'm going to say this and it may offend some of you, but I really don't care. You can come and talk to me afterwards and I'll point you to Don Teodoro, then he can take care of the problems for me. But if you hope to enter into a relationship with God, in other words, I'm saying to some of you here, you got to go deeper. You got to go further. Because you may be a believer, but you're not really experiencing him. If you ever hope to enter into a personal relationship with God, it requires focus and determination because no one naturally knows how to pray. Proper prayer is learned. And Ari Torrey explains it this way. I mean, listen to this, because he was a pastor. And you can probably relate to this. I know some of you have, because we already talked to you about this. It says, we should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we are definitely conscious that we have come to the presence of God and are actually praying to him. Let's face it, right then and there. That's not how we pray. We bow our heads, we close our eyes, and we start talking. And he's saying, don't do that. Wait until you can at least learn to sense his presence, that he's with you, and then start talking. He says this, I can remember when that thought transformed my prayer life. I was brought up to pray. Now, here's the point. I was brought up to pray. I was taught to pray so early in my life that I have not the slightest recollection of who taught me to pray. Nevertheless, prayer was largely a mere matter of form. There was little real thought of God and no real approach to God. And even after I was converted, yes, even after I had entered the ministry, Prayer was largely a matter of form. Can you relate to that? That's, you know. Folks, that's not a good thing, okay? That's not a good thing. I remember when I, that thought captivated me. I felt like I'm just, I'm praying. I am, my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I'm just talking to a wall. There's got to be something more. It's just not worth it. Because my experience in my Christianity was far different from the pages I read in the New Testament. And by the way, you know why prayer meetings are poorly attended and why even when you're in prayer meetings, 
You may discipline yourself and come, but you're really not enjoying it. You want to know why? You're not experiencing him. You're not, you're not in a relationship with him. You want to be, I hope, but you do it because that's what people do in church. That's what you do on Sunday. But he said, but the day came when I realized what real prayer meant. Realized that prayer was having an audience with God, actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from him. And the realization of that fact transformed my prayer life. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty, and sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on, prayer has been not merely a duty, but a privilege, one of the most highly esteemed privileges of a life. Before that, the thought that I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? The thought that now possesses me is, how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? That's a different experience, isn't it? It took R.A. Torrey years to finally learn how to pray. He struggled, as we all do, with prayer, becoming a mere formality or a duty. Prayer is a duty for some. It needs to be a delight. Now, number two. Because of the incredible power given to the subjects of his kingdom, and I want you to hear me on this, the incredible power that is given to you through prayer. Now, just think about this. Remember, Elijah was a man just like us, right? He had a nature just like us. But through prayer, he was able to shut up the heavens from raining for three and a half years. He raised a boy from the dead during that time. He called down fire from heaven. And then through his prayers, commanded that it rain, and it did. Now, is that power? <laughs> and it was done through his praying. Because of that incredible power given to the people of God through prayer, Satan will do everything possible to tempt us while we pray. Okay? This is why it's hard to pray. Martin Lloyd-Jones has well stated it this way. He says, we tend to think of sin as we see it in rags and in the gutters of life. We look at a drunkard, a poor fellow, and we say, there is sin. That is sin. But that is not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of sin, you must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man, Look at him there on his knees in the very presence of God. Even there, self is intruding itself, and the temptation is for him to think about himself. You ever have thoughts about yourself when you're praying? To think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself, and to really be worshiping himself rather than God. That, not the other, is the picture of sin. The other is sin, of course, but there you do not see it at its peak. You do not see it in its essence. Or to put it in another way, if you really want to understand something about the nature of Satan and his activities, the thing to do is not to go to the dregs or to the gutters of life. If you really want to know something about Satan, go away to that wilderness where our Lord spent 40 days and 40 nights. What was he doing? praying. That's the picture of Satan where you see him tempting the very son of God while he's praying, while he's communing with his father. Because there's no sacred ground for Satan. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So when we learn to pray as our Lord teaches us, we find a God, though, who is more than eager 
to give us what we ask for. It says that God will reward you. He desires to reward you. If you have children, don't you desire to give them gifts? God desires to bless you. I mean, he knows what you need before you ask him, right? And both Matthew and Mark record for us the story of the withered fig tree. Remember this story? And we kind of gloss over these two, two parables, but there's an incredible promise from the lips of Jesus. It says this, And all things you ask in prayer, believe, you will receive. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Mark eleven twenty four, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Those two verses, those two stories pertain to the withered fig tree. I mean, he's telling you that I've given you a weapon. I've given you incredible power. It's called prayer. I mean, even the Old Testament witnesses to God's eagerness to hear our prayers favorably. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now again, it ties in what Jesus said, because who is watching us while we pray? It says God is, right? Because he obviously was watching the hypocritical prayers of the Pharisees. He obviously was watching the meaningless repetition of the pagans. And he was able to see, because in a typical house at the time in Israel, they had an outer wall, remember this? And thieves would kind of break into the, the clud and the, and, and, and the hay and the clay, and they would, could steal from you. But they would build an inner room inside the house where they kept their valuables. And Jesus is saying, go in there to pray. No one can see you. But who can see you? God, Exactly. It just seems that Scripture kind of relentlessly reminds us that our Heavenly Father wants to meet our needs when we ask Him. It seems as if God has invited us to test Him on this, just you know, by coming to Him in prayer, by being bold in our prayers. Now I want to close this morning with another short story of answered prayer. So our church had a ministry of feeding the poor called Loaves and Fishes. And I laughed when I read this story because what an awful name of our ministry, Loaves and Fishes. It's not catchy at all, is it? It's kind of really cheesy. It's called Loaves and Fishes. One time my friend and I served Tuesday nights at Loaves and Fishes years ago. We served from 5 to 6.15, and it was summertime, with people lined up all the way down the street at 5 o'clock. We always served bread and peanut butter and then the meal. My friend came to me and said, we were out of bread. And it was only 5.15. I looked at her and went over to the stove and simply said, Father God, it is only 5.15, and we are already out of bread. You will have to make this stretch just as you did when you fed the 5,000. And I just continued to serve those coming to eat. About five minutes later, there was a knock on the back door, which no one ever uses. I went to the door, and this man said that, he has never been to loaves and fishes, but he had all this extra bread, and someone suggested to take it to loaves and fishes. Then my friend and I right there praised God for not only hearing our prayer, but answering it so quickly. Now, that's the sermon prayer matters. Yes, prayer does matter, but that's not what it stands for. All the different topics that we went over hypocritical praying, to meanness praying, to the secret praying. Now the point of all of this is, apart from the instruction you receive, is simply to do this, I want you to pray. Because unfortunately, today, the state of the church and the state of the body of Christ, I, would, I could not translate this text, Matthew 6, 5 through 8, with when you pray. It would be if you pray. Because you know as well as I do, and we've talked about this openly, was that the average believer spends, what, two minutes a day in prayer, if that? We're not having three calls a day to pray 
are we? But I want you to pray, and I want you to pray this week, and I want you to pray next Sunday at 9.30 in the fellowship hall. Because we're going to open that up again and pray before church. It'll be enough space in there. You can wear your mask, and you can go in there and pray. And Don Theodore is going to lead that, and I'll be there off and on. Okay, But we're going to pray. I told you when I first got here, the very first thing I think I told you was this will be a house of prayer. And so we are going to pray. I think it's safe enough for us to do that. Okay? And if everyone in here is not there at 9.30, woe to you, right? But let's pray. Now, I know some of you are thinking, okay, the windbag is finally done. I can go home now. Um, but we're not done. Um, I want us to spend some time praying. In particular, we used to, and we're going to institute this as well, pray for people after church. So if you have a prayer request or a need, I want you to come up and pray. But specifically, I want to pray for Roger and his recovery from his hip surgery. So Roger, you do not have to stand. I like people to gather around him that are comfortable and pray for him. Okay, and in particular, he needs the he needs the two H's, health and housing. Correct. He needs to find a place to live, and he needs a, 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 a speedy recovery, a full recovery from his hip replacement surgery. We can also pray for Carol. Apart from the fact she's married to Don, that's enough of a prayer right there. Her back's back acting up, right? And she could use prayer for that. And, and I know none of us in here have ever had any back problems, right? So we can obviously pray for her, okay? So we're not going to close right now with a song. I want people to gather around those two people and pray for them, okay? And if you have any other prayer needs, you can come up here and, and pray, and some other people can gather around you, and we are going to pray. That means get up and move now, people. <laughs> Judy can come up here if you want to. Anyone wants to pray, you, you can pray with Judy. If you're not over there praying with them, you can privately be praying in a group where you are. 